Before I get into this episode, I have a few corrections to make after episode 13. First off, I misspoke when I mentioned Eugene Martin and Mark Allen. I said that they were from West Des Moines. I should have said that they were from Des Moines. So that being said, Yellowbag mentioned in his story that he called the West Des Moines police after Johnny was abducted to report the man in the white Ford Fairmont who approached him six months earlier. When he was approached, it happened near East 25th Street and Grand in Des Moines. Also, Wilbur Milhouse did not directly offer Yellowbag money to expose himself, because Milhouse very much presented himself as heterosexual at all times, and he would even talk about having an ex-wife. And see, in the 1980s, if anyone had caught wind of Milhouse propositioning teenage boys, he would have been fired immediately, as homosexuals were not allowed to work with children. Milhouse would tell Yellowbag that he was exposing himself to rich gay men for money, and he suggested Yellowbag come over to his house and do it too, because it was an easy way to make cash. That was the ruse. When I first read through Yellowbag's whole story, and then when I got to speak to him through email, the whole thing took my breath away. Really, it took the wind out of me, because the thing is, this is information in regards to the Johnny Gosh case that has never been shared before. This is the kind of information that can lead to a brand new investigation. So, as we know by now, Wilbur Milhouse was a pedophile. We know that from Yellowbag's own account, and from Milhouse's own arrest in November of 1986 on sexual abuse charges. And he was a circulation manager within the Des Moines Register at the time that Johnny was there. However, as it turns out, he was not the only pedophile within that establishment. He's also not the only suspicious figure in the months leading up to Johnny's disappearance or during the investigation afterward. These are the people whose names you do not commonly hear when researching the Johnny Gosh case, whether you're watching documentaries, reading the old articles, reading the websites. So in my first segment today, we're going to take it back to basics again. We're going to go over Yellowbag's account in more detail and get a little more insight on why he thinks Wilbur Milhouse was responsible for Johnny's disappearance. Also for this episode, I'd like to ask everyone listening to help me in beginning to try to make a connection between the Des Moines Register and the guys in the Ford Fairmont who took Johnny on September 5th, 1982. This is episode 14 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. podcast, we've been exploring the theory that after Johnny Gosh was abducted, he was sold into a pedophile ring and taken across state lines to a house in Colorado. From there, we've been exploring the claim that Johnny, along with some other victims of the pedophile ring, stole a car around the late 80s, early 90s, and had gone on to hide out at various Indian reservations. The majority of people I've spoken with about this think that that's a very unlikely scenario and is probably not true. However, after speaking to Joan Dillon in great detail about it, we realized that, albeit unlikely, it could be possible only if Johnny or one of the other boys knew somebody on one of these reservations. 
But since Yellowback's perspective came to light last week, I'd like us to all go back to 1982 and begin exploring a different scenario. Let me be clear that we are not discounting the Indian reservation theory. We are simply putting a pin in it for right now, and we may very well unpin it in an upcoming episode. But before we go off any deep ends, it's important to know who the players were in and around West Des Moines. Who was responsible for Johnny's initial disappearance? Remember what David David Bielinson said about having to go through different layers and about what is apparent? Here's a reminder of what David said to me as we talked about the day that Johnny vanished. I think you have to go through different layers. I think the initial layer is, did he run away or was he abducted? Yeah. That's the initial question because he's still classified as a missing person. Right. Classified as, you know, victim of a abduction, a victim of, uh, you know, any kind of, you know, physical or aggravated assault of some kind. It's apparent that he was abducted, and it's apparent that, or went somewhere against his will, it's apparent that he was abducted by, I believe, more than one person. So if you sort of go into that realm of more than one person having to be involved, then you have to start to think, well, how does that work? What does that feel? Why are two people abducting a 12-year-old kid? What do you want with a 12-year-old kid? Never a ransom note. There was never any money exchange. And, or some kind of, um, you know, sex and or you know, slave abuse situation. We know that it happens around the world, and we know that that oftentimes what happens with kids. We usually hear about it in other countries, though, and not our own. Um, or it was an organ, you know, uh, you know, a, a serial killer and his pedophile buddy who took him and decided they were going to do what they were going to do and then kill him and bury him somewhere. Since it is apparent to us that Johnny was abducted, let's then look at the latter of the possibilities David gives. As in, suppose a local pedophile and his buddy killed him and buried him somewhere. So for that, I'd like to take you back to Yellowbag's story, as well as a conversation that played out on the Iowa Cold Cases website between Yellowbag and another user named Don. Don initiates the back and forth by stating that according to his own research, Noreen Gosh did at one time believe that the Des Moines Register was protecting an employee who was believed to be a pedophile. That aligns perfectly with Yellowbag's claim because remember, he had said that Wilbur Milhouse was a circulation manager and had transferred from West Des Moines to the east side shortly before Johnny disappeared. So Yellowbag responds to Don and explains that as he recalls, Milhouse was angry about having been transferred. He had, as he put it, fallen out of favor with the register management and his job was in jeopardy. In talking about Johnny, Milhouse would say that he was not Johnny's direct supervisor, but he did know him as Johnny delivered papers in an adjacent district in West Des Moines. And Milhouse told Yellowbag on more than one occasion that Johnny was kidnapped because he, quote, couldn't keep his mouth shut. So as I mentioned in my last episode, and as Yellowbag reiterates it here again, his belief is that the Des Moines Register would kind of shuffle around management if they were accused of something depraved of this nature, kind of in the same manner as how you would see the Catholic Church shuffle around abusive priests. He believes that either Milhouse or one of Milhouse's friends may have tried to make a sexual or inappropriate advance on Johnny, and Johnny had either told someone or he was planning to tell someone. Therefore, the anger that Milhouse showed over being transferred from West Des Moines to the east side would explain why he would become visibly angry whenever Johnny's name would come up. 
because it was Johnny's telling somebody about this alleged sexual abuse that led to Milhouse getting in trouble and being transferred. So Don replies back in another post after this, and he says that he's conducted his own research by reading the microfilm of the Des Moines Register newspapers, beginning with the day after Johnny disappeared and ending with about two months later. He says within that two-month span, there's a lot of discrepancies between the official story that Noreen gives now and what she believed happened back then. At one point, she was quoted in a Northern Iowa newspaper as warning parents not to allow their kids to deliver papers for the Des Moines Register because she believes the perp was working at the Register. But if I could just throw in my two cents here, there's another way to look at that. When you're talking about up to two months after Johnny disappeared versus now, almost 36 years later, that makes the difference right there between the case being fresh with no leads or information at all versus all the information Noreen has gathered over the decades. But even if that is your reasoning, it doesn't answer the question on why no one at the register was suspected or even questioned in the case. And something else that I touched on in my last episode, which Yellowbag reiterates at this point, is that Yellowbag believes that Noreen was duped by her private investigators. He talked to me about this too when he and I first made contact. He explains how, based on what he's read, it was common practice for a private investigator with no real leads to create an elaborate conspiracy theory and link it to politicians and other powerful people. He's not wrong. Do you remember back in episode nine when I first talked about the theory originated on Reddit? The theory the gay escort turned White House reporter Jeff Gannon was Johnny Gosh? Turns out that when Ted Gunderson caught wind of that rumor, he began to spread it around like wildfire, though it had no basis. So likely that's the reason why that rumor gained so much momentum. When a former FBI special agent in charge makes that kind of claim, most people, and that includes news media, tend to listen. And the reason that private investigators have been known to do this is because it can drag an investigation out for years while still keeping their paychecks coming. Basically, Yellowbag's belief on what happened to Johnny Gosh is much more simplified than any other timeline of events we've ever been given before. In his version, there's no supposed escape onto Indian reservations in the Midwest. There's no midnight meeting at Noreen's apartment in 1997. At least, it wasn't Johnny who showed up there. And let me be clear, I do not claim Yellowbag's ideas as fact, but I do very much think that he's on to something in regards to someone at the Des Moines Register being involved in the initial kidnapping that Sunday morning, and probably who it was that was involved. He also brings up another circulation manager at the Register by the name of Frank Sikora, who was convicted of sexually abusing newspaper carriers in 1984. I did a quick Google search on him, and I found an article from the UPI archives dated October 19th, 1984. The article reads, quote, A former newspaper employee who confessed to having sexual contact with at least seven of the young carriers he supervised at Iowa's largest newspaper pleaded innocent today to sexual abuse charges. Frank Sikora. 37, Des Moines, turned himself into authorities at 7 a.m. and later pleaded innocent to one charge of third-degree sexual abuse and one count of lewd and lascivious acts with a child. Polk County Associate District Judge Norman Elliott set bond at $5,000 on each count. Socorro was fired from his job in the Des Moines Register Circulation Department Monday when a private investigator released a videotaped confession in which Socorro discussed his relationship with at least seven paperboys. However, 
However, Havelin said officials did not rely solely on the two-hour tape made by investigator Sam Soda. He said Thursday's charges were based on information gathered during a police investigation. Police have said a polygraph test earlier this week showed Sikora had no involvement in the disappearance of registered newspaper carriers Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. Gosh vanished September 5, 1982, while delivering newspapers. Martin disappeared from his paper route August 12th. On the videotape, Sakura confessed to sleeping with seven young newspaper carriers who worked as runners on his routes. He admitted masturbating a 14-year-old boy and said he fondled almost all the boys, Soda said. Soda has suggested Sakura may have some information about the missing boys. This is a man who is in a position where he knows all the routes and all the carriers, said Soda. Spokesmen of the anti-child pornography group called Stolen Children are reported every day, end quote. So Frank Sakura was cleared by polygraph test from having any involvement in either Johnny Gosh or Eugene Martin's disappearance. And we don't know if Sakura and Wilbur Milhouse had any connection to each other, but they did both work for the Des Moines Register around the same time. You also heard me mention another name in that article, a private investigator named Sam Soda. I want you to remember that name because he is going to come up again in an upcoming episode. And I want you to digest for a second this notion that there was a much more local pedophile ring connected to the Des Moines Register. If that's the lead we're going to go with, and if Wilbur Milhouse was responsible for Johnny's kidnapping and possibly Eugene Martin's, what would have been the series of events that followed? In my next segment, we're going to explore that route. We're going to entertain the probability of Yellowbag's ideas on what happened to Johnny being accurate. That's up next. conversation continues on the Iowa Cold Cases website. Yellowback goes on to say that if he were working to solve Johnny's disappearance, that it might be worthwhile to check Milhouse's former property. He says that Milhouse used to live in an area that people refer to as the Bottoms. And on multiple occasions, Milhouse would try to convince Yellowbag to drive to his house late at night without telling his parents. Remember, Yellowbag is about 16 by this point, and as I mentioned in my last episode, Milhouse had started calling him at home daily. Milhouse called him one night and said there was a cute female carrier there looking for a teenage boy to have sex with. Another time, he said that he had a rich gay friend who would pay $100 just to look. Another time, he said he just had work for him to do there. And Milhouse's excuse for always wanting him to come late at night was always that he did not want to wake his elderly mother. Think about that. Does that make sense? 
Now, I want to remind everybody that this is pure speculation, but Yellowback does mention that if you Google map Milhouse's old address, there is a wooded area and a pond directly behind his old house. So let's hypothesize for a minute. Say you're Milhouse. You're this grown man interested in teenage boys, buying them beer, calling them at home, asking them to come over to your house late at night, offering them money to expose themselves to your rich friends. And then this one kid, Johnny, starts telling people about your advances. Maybe he starts by just talking about it to other paper boys. Maybe then some adults catch wind of it. Then maybe Johnny says something to someone at the Des Moines Register. Through a series of events, you get transferred from your job as a circulation manager in West Des Moines to a district in the east side of town. You're also told by management that your job is in jeopardy now. And you don't like this. In fact, you're seethingly angry about this. But that's not your only problem. You don't know if this Johnny kid is going to keep talking about you. So what do you do? What do you and the group of sketchy guys you've been interacting with do about this? Well, as I said earlier, we can't discount everything else we've learned so far. The woman seen taking pictures of Johnny just a few weeks before he disappeared. Paul Bonassi's entire account of being in the back seat of the blue Ford Fairmont that took Johnny that morning, and his reports of seeing Johnny at the abandoned house in Colorado, as he described it all to Dr. Judy Ann Denson Gerber. That's why I say, let's stick a pin in that. But let's assume for right now that Milhouse was not some mastermind with connections to other pedophile rings outside his own little circle within the Des Moines area. Would it make more sense to sell him into a pedophile ring across state lines, or to just pluck him off the street with whomever you hired to grab him knowing exactly what streets he would be on that morning, and then kill him and dispose of him in what you know to be a remote area. Don replies to Yellowbag's comment, and he talks about how Yellowbag at one point mentioned that Millhouse was transferred to the Four Mile section of Des Moines on the east side. He goes on to say that back then, Four Mile Creek ran through mostly undeveloped land, and even now, with the exception of Pleasant Hill, it still does. He says there was speculation for years that Johnny's body was dumped along either Walnut Creek or Jordan Creek. So why not Four Mile Creek? So if this hypothesis is correct, couldn't it be possible that Milhouse had either got together with some of his pedophile buddies, or maybe he or one of them had a connection to hire somebody to grab Johnny, kill him, and bury him in one of those areas on the east side of town? But then Yellowbag responds again. He says, if Johnny had been dumped along a creek, his body likely would have been found a long time ago. Because though they may look desolate, there's mushroom hunters, hikers, people who frequent numerous stretches of it, even homeless people known to stay close to that area. So he reiterates, Milhouse lived on Maury Street, right next to Dean Lake in the area known as the Bottoms. Back at the time in the early 80s, it wasn't much more than swamps, trees, junkyards, and slaughterhouses. A little further down, he mentions that if Johnny was killed to shut him up, which is what Milhouse kept bragging about after he disappeared, then it's likely the kidnapper already had a plan to dispose of his body and figured that the sun would be coming up soon, so they would have to hurry to get Johnny out of West Des Moines and to a remote area before daylight. Like, for example, the Bottoms. Or, for argument's sake, any remote, desolate area that was nearby and easy to get to. 
Now, if you read through these comments on the Iowa cold cases site, you'll see that at this point in Yellowbag and Don's back and forth is where I chime in saying that I do a podcast and I'd really like to talk to the two of them. Yellowbag is more inclined to believe that the person who was driving the blue Ford Fairmont the morning that Johnny was kidnapped, who has always been identified simply as Emilio, may have been a worker at the Des Moines Register, as in maybe it was someone Johnny knew and pulled up and offered him a ride as the Sunday morning papers were significantly thicker and heavier than the normal weekday papers. But I have to disagree with that because Johnny had his red wagon with him that morning. I imagine that's the whole reason he had his red wagon with him that morning. Also, he had his little mini dachshund Gretchen with him. Johnny wouldn't have just abandoned Gretchen and his wagon there on the sidewalk, and all the papers were still inside the wagon. Not one had been delivered. So that detail right there is enough to satisfy me personally that Johnny could not have known the person in the Ford Fairmont and did not get in willingly. The person who comes to my mind as I try to put these new pieces of the puzzle together is Paul Benassi. Did he have a connection to either Wilbur Milhouse or any one of Milhouse's buddies? Did one of Milhouse's friends maybe know a guy who knows a guy, make a few phone calls, and was able to hire someone to get rid of Johnny that morning? Because stop for a second and think about this. Think only about that morning and the events leading up to it. Do not think about anything that may have happened after the Ford Fairmont blew through the stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt. Because no matter what you believe happened beyond that, everything that we've talked about today and in my last episode fits in with the timeline of events up until that point. So if Benassi did have a connection to Milhouse or one of his friends, then you have to look at this look at the Franklin scandal, look at the far-reaching pedophile rings that have stretched all the way to Washington, D.C. Who's the common denominator in all of that? Paul Benassi. So my question is, how do we rule this out? Now that we have this new hypothesis that Wilbur Milhouse was involved in Johnny's disappearance and the hypothesis that Johnny was killed immediately and disposed of somewhere, such as the bottoms or a creek or any remote area within the vicinity, what do we have to do to either verify or debunk this theory? What can I do as a podcaster to get the ball rolling on this? Was Milhouse involved? Or was he just some loser who heard about Johnny's disappearance on the news and decided to take credit for it? If we can sort of crowdsource an idea on where to go from here, we can find some answers. I'll be the first to admit I am thick-headed, and being 14 episodes so far into this podcast with more to go, I feel there needs to be a resolution to all this. So in my next episode, I want to talk more about who was inside that Ford Fairmont the morning of Johnny's kidnapping, the man that we know as Emilio, and the man who came out from between two houses. Where did they come from, and how do they fit into all of this? I also want to talk about a man that I mentioned briefly today a private investigator by the name of Sam Soda. In the meantime, please feel free to get in touch with me. You can email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimio. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. I read every message that is sent to me. I will get back to you as quickly as I can. We do also have a closed group that you can request to join on Facebook called Followers of Faded Out, where we really get into it and discuss the details of the case. 
If you would like to read Yellowback's comments for yourself and the back and forth with Don, all you have to do is go to iowacoldcases.org. Search the name Johnny Gosh, go to that page and scroll down to the comment section. Yellowback's comments start about midway through the comments and continue sporadically. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 14. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.